Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the People Who Surf podcast. I am Chris Morrow, your host, and I am super excited today to bring you my special guest, Dr. Brian Doonan, one of the unsung heroes of our sport. Doonan and his twin brother, Kent, were two of the best surfers coming out of the LA area during the late 80s and early 90s. They grew up competing against and hanging out with everyone from that famous momentum generation. Both Dunans earned national titles as amateurs and chased their dreams as pros, but they both ended up in medical school. Now, given these guys were enjoying a lot of limelight at that time, it was a big move. In 1998, they talked about it in Surfer Magazine's People Who Surf column, which, by the way, is the same column that inspired this very podcast. It's been 20 years since that feature. Brian now runs a bunch of urgent care centers and has a sports and medicine practice in Newport Beach, which is where I caught up with him to talk about his work, his relationship with surfing and the sport, and the choices that he and his brother have made along the way, both as a unit growing up and now as individuals. So, Brian Duden, welcome, buddy. Thank you. Hi, Chris. Oh, man, it's great to see you. Good to see you. Just to get the lay of the land here for you and your career, right now you have five different urgent care centers. Yeah. Your own practice. I do. Um, which is a sports and medicine practice and a family physician thing, right? Yes. Okay. And then at the same time, you still volunteer every once in a while at these surf events and other functions. Correct? Yeah. <laughs> so you're working how many days a week? Seven. It's just nonstop. It's nonstop. But, you know, the days that you're at the events, it, it's for me, that's a vacation day. Yeah, I imagine. It's a lot of fun. But are you feeling like overworked at this stage or do you feel like you're just having too much fun? That, that's an awesome question because as a pro surfer, you surf every single day. There's no days off when the waves are on fire. Pipe is six to eight and spitting both ways. Are you going to take the day off? Right. Nope. Yeah. And so you're basically where you are in your career right now. It's 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 six foot J Bay. It's six foot J Bay, <laughs> and I'm on fire right now. <laughs> so you're just going. Yes. Now, you're still single guy, married guy. Single. Dude, you're gonna like get ABC call and put you on The Bachelor or something because like, what's the deal there? So many people. Girlfriend? I, no, I don't have a girlfriend. I. Right now, I just work, and um, you'd be I, impossible to date. It's too tough. No, that's the problem. I just I feel so bad because you know we have a great date or something, and I'm just not around. And right. they finally just give up. <laughs> they do. I feel bad. I'm like, I'm sorry. You don't have time. It's I really-, really don't. And right now, I don't. But you know, a couple of years, I'll I'll have plenty of time. It seems like just over the last decade or so, maybe it's been longer, but there's just been this proliferation of urgent care centers. At what point did you decide that that was the path you wanted to go down? Was it more of a business decision looking at the industry as a whole and the trends and where things were going? Yeah. Luckily, when I was a senior resident at UCI, I got hired by Ross Medical Group, which was a group of urgent care centers. And they kind of fished me around to different spots. So I sort of got to see what it was like and what each community was like and what each community needed. And everyone needs a primary care doctor that they can relate to. So I was just like, how am I going to do this? Like, how am I going to just set up a, a shingle in one town and be me? And, and, you know, nowadays, because of all the, the changes in healthcare, you need to, you need, really need to see a lot of patients to do well. Because the reimbursements from health, like from Medicare and from the insurance companies are far less than they used far, to be. Yeah, far less. And with inflation, it's, it's so different. So you really have to see a lot more patients during the day to make a living. And it's so interesting you say that because my father was a physician for 35 years. He retired in the end of the 90s, I think. So it's funny because a lot of my doctor friends, they're yeah. just like, oh, dude, your dad was golden age he started doing house calls. Yeah, it really was, you know, but that's, that's the way I wanted to be. Nowadays, you just wouldn't make it. You just have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for dinner with your kids. And and it just, I just sort of had to shift and say, how am I going to do that in the modern day? You obviously have an entrepreneurial mind because you don't just open five urgent care practices without some sort of business sense. 
Yeah, well, I minored in economics in college at UC San Diego, and it kind of gave me an idea of like, hey, what do I need to do? Sort of strategize on how to be become bigger and bigger as I go. And, you know, sometimes you just jump into it and you have no idea what you're doing, and then it just happens. I don't know if you were just out of med school or what. Do you remember that time at Rob Machado's golf tournament? Yeah. When I got bit by a spider? I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Were you already a doctor by then? I don't even remember. <laughs> I was. I'm like, what is this thing? You know? And you're like, dude. <laughs> you need some antibiotics. <laughs> but what blew me away, you know, I'd known you. You you and your brother, Kent, were tiny little groms when I was getting out of the NSSA. We never knew each other that well back then. But not only did you stop everything, dude, you got to look at this. Your eyes blew up and you were so caring about it. And not only that, you called me the next day. I did? Yeah. And you're like, hey, are you okay? And I just remember, I was telling my wife that day, actually, I went home. I go, I think I found our new doctor. Because <laughs> I had to find, I still haven't necessarily landed a doctor. It's hard. I don't even have one. It's really tough. Like, I'm having a, a very tough time figuring out who my GP should be to this day. You're looking at him. <laughs> Brian and Kent didn't actually become Dunans until they were five months old, when they were adopted by their wonderful parents, George and Liz. Today, they understand well the crucial roles both nature and nurture play in life. Had their parents not moved from New Jersey to California when the boys were six, it's unlikely they would have ever become surfers. It's still a bit of a feat given they grew up in La Cañada, an L.A. suburb that sits in the shadows of the Angeles National Forest near Pasadena which is L.A., but it's against the mountains. It's about 30 minutes to Santa Monica, which, you know, it's hard to surf these days, and about 45 minutes from Malibu. Tell me about this family. Uh, my mom's a dietitian. My, my dad was an accountant by trade and then became the CFO of multiple companies and really pushed us to get an education. Were you the only children? Um, we were. Okay. Yeah, you know, they, they were thinking about adopting a Korean child at the time, and then my brother and I came up. The adoption agency just called them and said, hey, we got these two identical twins. Why don't you come down and look at them? And sure enough, they took us home the next day. That is so cool. My wife was adopted, so. She was? Yeah, it, and now today one of her best friends is her birth mom, her biological mom. Wow. Yeah. So That is awesome. Those are always interesting stories. Did you guys ever find out about your biological parents? Um. It's on the way right now. Oh, you're kidding. And are your are your adoptive parents okay with that? Or are they supportive? Oh, or are they beyond okay. They, okay. My mom actually told me years ago that she would help us find them. Oh, that's so cool. And, you know, the love was so strong. I'm like, no, we're, we're good. We're yeah. good right now. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just as you get older, it's nice to know the past medical history and that sort of thing. Oh, and, of course. Yeah. What were some of the other things that they did right when you look back at your childhood and the way you were raised and how you hopefully want to raise your own children? Yeah, just my, my dad always made time for us. He would leave work early. He coached all of our teams. So he was our baseball coach. He was our soccer coach, you know, in the AYSO days. And that meant a lot. And that's exactly what I'd like to be for my kids. So how did you end up being surfers living in La Cañada? How did that happen? Well, it was so hot. We wanted to get to the beach. <laughs> so... And one of my friends um, surfed, so he took us down to Huntington one day, and and I caught one wave. Only I caught a bunch of waves and just got pounded, and then I caught one wave in Huntington from the outside. Stood up and rode it all the way through the sore break. And this was like your first time, my very first wave, and I was hooked. I remember. I think he left like some surf clothes in my bag, and I wore it to school the next day. I wore all of his clothes. I was like, I'm a surfer now. <laughs> Do you remember going back to your parents and telling them about your experience? They, you know, they were excited that I, I found something else that I liked. Mm -hmm. But again, they, they never would let us do anything unless we had good grades. So previous to surfing, we were, my brother and I were trying to be pro skateboarders. Here we are, 11, trying to surf all the vert ramps. There was one house where all the Pal Peralta riders would come called Steve Ashamala's Ramp, and it had like four feet of vertical, and it was the biggest ramp in all of the valley in L.A. 
and all the pros would come. So we just saw it, and we we're just like, we gotta skate that ramp. Are you serious? How <laughs> yes. close? How close were you guys to that? To the ramp? Yeah, literally just did, did a few blocks, like oh. literally a half mile away. Oh, um, so you guys were in deep. Yeah, we were in deep. We really wanted to get good at it. So my parents every weekend would take us to the Bonsai Pipeline, which is what in Upland, California, where they had all these vertical pools. And as long as we had good grades, they would take us every weekend. That was our reward. When you got home from school, were they sit down, finish your homework, and then you can go skate? Yes. That was 100% the rule? 100%. And were you guys just powering through? Powering. <laughs> Let's go! <laughs> Who was faster? Who was slower on the homework front? I was always slower. Really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know why my brother just blasted it out. He's outside. He's like, gosh, I got to get this done. <laughs> <laughs> and then once we got into surfing, instead of going to the pipeline, they would drive us to the beach. Surfing LA County, down in Orange County. What would you do? Mostly Huntington and Newport. Okay. Because it was the most consistent. Um, we weren't good enough yet to surf Malibu, but once we started surfing enough, we started surfing Malibu. Your parents put you into the Pasquitz camp in, 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 at San Onofre when you guys were what? 12. That was an, probably one of the best experiences, which opened my eyes to professional surfing because we got down to camp and they had a lot of the local pros from San Clemente would come down. And one of the biggest guys at the time was Jim Hogan. And he paddled out with my brother and I at San Onofre. And you, how was that? That was probably the, the highlight of my, my youth as an amateur because I was 12 years old. I didn't know how to do a backside cutback, and Jim Hogan's explaining to me, okay, you need to get speed, and you need to turn it down this way, and I did one. And Sano in the summertime, South Swell, when you're 12 years old, it's like, is there any better spot? Not, not one. It's the best place on earth. You know, Malibu was a good wave, but it was so crowded that you never really got a good one because we weren't that good at the time. And then Huntington was probably the longest ride I had. But when we went down this, to San Onofre for the first time, I just saw these guys riding the waves forever. And I said, this is real surfing. This is it. Safe to say that trip set you up for, for the pro surfing dream? It did because it, it, there were some young guys that were also there from Florida that were sponsored. So we got to see, oh my gosh, these guys are good and they're sponsored. We're 12. <laughs> we want clothes. <laughs> when you kind of started hanging out in Newport and Huntington, obviously you make friends with people around there. Who were your influences early on? Like who were the guys who kind of sucked you into the vortex? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. Being in Newport, you know, it was, it was for sure um, Todd Miller, Cordell Miller, Richie Collins just hit the scene and just was winning the Cold Water Classic at that time. And all those guys were just my idols. They were the guys growing up watching them surf and just uh, seeing Todd Miller win contests. And then they had Quicksilver actually had workouts on the beach at the time. So we would go to the workouts before we were sponsored and just watch them surf and get to surf against them. And so that's how we really got to know them. And then they, you know, sort of coached us through it. Did you spend a lot of time, like, would you stay the night down here on the weekends after you got your driver's license? How would that work? Yeah, you know what? We would probably drive back when it was Newport. But uh, when we were down in San Diego, we became friends in high school with Rob Machado. And he would just let us stay. So we'd stay the whole weekend. Down in San Diego, what were you doing down in San Diego? Just surfing? Yeah, we were surfing the, the NSSAs. And I remember I made the finals at the Seaside Reef um, NSSA. And I think I ended up getting third, and Rob won that contest. And then after the finals, he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? And we're like, not sure. We're probably going to drive all the way home. He's like, why don't you just stay at my house? So then, then on, we just started staying at Rob's house. And, and you know that was right before the momentum generation even started. That was right at the beginning. And next guy he introduced me to was Taylor Steele. Rob's whole family was so surf stoked and everything at the time. It was like being in a surf club. It really was. And um, but the greatest thing about Rob's dad was, you know, he used to sit us all down and say, hey, guys, if you're not making this much a month when you become pro surfers, you got to think about other things. So, you know, not only my parents just ingrained that in me, but it was nice to hear it from someone else. And to a certain extent, I look at your generation and 
you know, as much as these guys change surfing, what I think is even more impressive is the fact that they all had this plan that went beyond being a pro surfer, the transition that they've made after their careers, right? Yeah. They all had that in mind before they went in. And it seems to me like you guys all really had a positive influence on each other. Yeah. Before this generation, people always sort of said, hey, surfers, all they want to do is, you know, hit the beach and drink beer and they don't want to be productive in life. But all the guys in this crew were super motivated, super clean, and then always wanted to have a future. The funniest thing I recall is Jack Johnson credits you guys because you guys were obviously lady killers. He credits you guys (laughs) with helping find his wife and and helping him meet his wife. I love him for that. (laughs) It is so funny. Tell me that story. We, I just remember we were at Jack's house at one time and we were talking about girls and, you know, how to actually get girls. Was this in Hawaii? This was in Hawaii. Just okay. how to get girls and, and keep them interested. It's like when you see a girl for the first time, how to do it. Right. So we, we gave him a few tricks. <laughs> his, one of his big ones was like, they told me if a girl ever makes eye contact with you first, never look away. Never look away. <laughs> Ever. Because if you like her, you better not look away. Right. That's rule number one. He met his wife at UCSB at the, uh, I guess it was like at the cafeteria or something. And she stared at him and he said it took all his strength not to stare away. It's so hard. It is so hard. Try it. Everybody give it a try. But yeah, he goes, we had the full 20 second stare down. (laughs) Because the girls are better at it. I hate to tell you, girls are way better at it. So you just have to overpower them. That is so funny. True story. (laughs) Now it's worth noting that in 1992, the Momentum Generation wasn't yet known as the Momentum Generation. After all, Taylor Steele's famous video wasn't released until that year, and Kelly Slater was still on his way to winning his first of 11 world titles. Meanwhile, guys like Rob Machado, Taylor Knox, and Pat O'Connell were grinding through the ranks of the domestic Bud Tour in the United States, working their way through what was then the new World Qualifying Series. Brian and Kent had their sights set on the biggest amateur event of the year, the NSSA Nationals, which had moved to lower trestles for the first time ever. Brian seized the moment and took the win. And given Kent had already earned regional titles of his own, the Dunans' popularity began to soar. Their combined efforts were paying off in ways they never imagined. Did you have the long, flowy hair during that time? Were you, like, spinning your hair around? Because I know at some point you and your brother both had, like, the... The, Absolutely, that's part of why I won. <laughs> yeah, the hair toss. It, it it just made that extra point five. <laughs> Did your brother make it? Did yeah, he make it to the final? He made it to the semis. And he blames it for carrying his bag down to lowers because because <laughs> I skated down and he carried my bag and he was like, I was too tired. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> you, you won it on his back. Yep. Thank you, Kent. What were your parents thinking at that point? You know, my parents actually didn't even know what it meant. <laughs> That's the funny thing. I, they weren't there. They were They were just saying, well, okay, it's another contest. They didn't really realize the level that my brother and I were. To some extent, that's kind of cool. It's kind of grounding in a way, right? That they're. It was. It was completely humbling because you'd come home. Um, I just won, and they're like, "Oh, good job, Brian!" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like slapping on the vibe. Yeah. Did you study for your final? Yeah. Did you, yeah. <laughs> exactly. How's school going? Yeah, that is great. Now, when you two both went to San Diego together, correct? Yes. So, pretty like-minded when you were younger. You guys, safe to say, you were joined at the hip. We really were. We were just a team. Just inseparable, right? Yeah. You know, just it was so fun to accomplish these goals together, Mm. getting ads together. When he won a contest, it felt like I won a contest. You both entered at the same time. You both came down together. Everyone knows you as the Dunan brothers. And then he ends up winning the contest. And it's just like I won it. (laughs) So I was like, oh. It's interesting, isn't it? When you have the same name. And you look exactly like one of you wins. You do both win. We both win. It's a win-win. It's twinning. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost like cheating. (laughs) (laughs) Now, your brother made you a better person, right? It's safe to say you guys both held each other accountable. 100%. Explain. Yeah, well, you always had that person to talk to, you know, going neck and neck 
whether it's competition or if it's something happened, you always had that person to talk to immediately and walk you through your thoughts. It's funny because like I have four brothers yeah, and love them all. But when you're growing up, you know, you're battling sometimes with your brothers uh-huh. is the, is the identical twin thing a little different in that you're the exact same age going through the exact same thing? It can go either way. Um, it's either the best thing ever or it's the, the heaviest, gnarliest brother warfare. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys did battle. We did battle. I mean, there's fights every day. Really? I mean, you'd ex- expect a punch every day. <laughs> but you get over it in one minute. And there is always the brotherly rule that we had. No matter how mad you were, you could not punch above the shoulders. And that should be a rule for all brothers, I think. Yeah, it's a pretty good rule. It's a great rule. Yeah. At some point, you become individuals in a way, right? It's super hard. (laughs) Yeah. You know, everyone knows us as Doonan. Yeah. Because half the time, when someone calls you Doonan, you're not sure if they don't know which one you are. Right. Or if that's just what they're saying. Right. so, So it's really hard to get your own individual identity. By the early 90s, the Dunans were becoming hot commodities in an industry that still had runway to grow. Doors were opening, and they were eager to run through each and every one of them. So immediately we were just itching, like, we got to do this. (laughs) And my parents were like, you have to finish two years of school. Really? Otherwise, forget it. We're not supporting you anymore. Like, you won't get a dime from us. Yep, no nickel from us if you don't finish at least two years down at UCSD. So we powered it out. I was probably almost 21, and I finished my second year, and then college dropout. Mm -hmm. So we were on the qualifying tour, and we really felt like we'd have to give it a try. And in order to give it a try, you have to travel. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't stay in school. So we finished our second year, and then we started signing up for all the contests. And literally, so once we dropped out, probably only a month after, I did an air. I was trying to to be the modern surfer. So I did this huge air on this huge set at Black's Beach that just completely barreled. And I landed in the crevice between the barrel and the whitewater. And it just tore my ankle around town, about 180 degrees. And, And I literally was like, oh my gosh, I didn't just do that. Brian's relationship with his sponsors was always solid. But the injury exposed just how vulnerable a pro career would leave him in the face of such a highly competitive scene. Our contracts were yearly, so I was just sitting on the couch biting my fingernails all oh. year, like, are they going to sign me next year? <laughs> I mean, oh this God. is bad. <laughs> and that was Quicksilver, right? That was Quicksilver. All right. So who was your main team guy? Was it Quok then? Yeah, it was Dan- Danny Quok. It was actually our main team guy when we were 18 was this guy named Richard Wolcott. Oh, yeah, yes. that guy. <laughs> so... He, he put us on the team when we were 18, and I remember because I was volunteering in high school at the hospital, mm. and he called us when we were sitting in the break room, and I ran outside of the hospital to talk to him, and he said, hey, do you guys like Quicksilver? We're like, yes. He's like, you want to be on our team? We're like, 200%. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did the Quicksilver gravy train continue for you guys like yeah luckily they signed me on after that year you know and it was this was at the time where i my brother and i were on quicksilver with this guy named kelly slater Mm -hmm. so kelly took all the money and we just took the the spare cents (laughs) (laughs) yeah and they had i mean those were the kind of the glory days they had a pretty sizable team right they did it was a big team the industry boomed probably in 96 right because we were on from 93 through 95 with Quicksilver, and it was like 94 where they cut all of the team mm. except my brother and I, and then there was another. And Machado was actually on Quicksilver when we were 18, but he went to Gotcha. I remember that. And yeah. it was just Kelly, and then my brother and I were there, and we're like, gosh, what are we going to do? Kelly's on the team. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, luckily we got to see it firsthand because right. nobody knew that he was going to have this longevity, but I did. Did you? I did. I just saw, I remember we were surfing Belzyland one, ta- one time shooting with Taylor Steele. And it was myself, um, Ross Williams, Shane Dorian, Kelly, and of course Mickey Nielsen was out there. Mm-hmm. And um, we were all out there and 
And I was just like, gosh, Kelly's surfing this wave so good. Why am I even out here? I remember actually saying that, and I was 19, <laughs> 20. And these poor guys, you know, Kelly, when he's 30, all these 20-year-olds had no idea that he was going to keep doing it until he's 40. Oh, my God. He's 47, man. Yeah, I can't believe it. It's just ridiculous. But obviously, fitness, health has been a huge part of his success. Yeah. Yeah, it was back, you know, when I started, it was just surfing. All you would do is surf. If you went to the gym, you were kind of looked at like you are a kook. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> wait, you're trying too hard. Dude. Yeah, you're trying too hard, man. You got to just get out here and hit the lip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I talked to a lot of doctors. I know a lot of doctors. And a lot of them knew from a very early age they wanted to do it. Like, yeah. that was just always on their, always, their, uh -huh, their was... plan. In fact, one of my NSSA mentors, guy who um, competed against um, – you know, the Kearns, and, and that was Dave Oates. Dave Oates, yeah. Yeah, Dave Oates, we always knew he was going to be a doctor. He was, you know, he was a great surfer. He was on that American team that won the world contest in 84, which, by the way, was on the, Richard Wolcott was on that team too. I remember when we would go up to Ventura for uh, open season contests, yeah. we would go stay at UCSB with Oates when, no he was, when he was, <laughs> when he was in college. I was 12 years old <laughs> in Isla Vista, and it would just be like, this place is the coolest place I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the, it, you guys were on a mission, it sounds like. It, it Was was there ever any doubt that you wanted to go into the medical profession? Was that – I know you wanted to be a pro surfer, but was it – that was number one backup plan? Yeah, that was always number one backup plan. Um, we both did research at UC San Diego – and we decided that we love people instead of, you know, being in the lab all day. So, and I, lo I just love hanging out with cool people. And medicine's turned into, into just that. In the wake of his injury, Brian was forced to sit still. And anybody who knows Brian will tell you that is a living hell for him. So facing months out of the water, he decided to put his backup plan front and center. Brian was going back to school and he was going to hit the books hard to get into medical school. As for Kent, he kept pushing on the contest circuit, taking a crack at the WQS. He moved to Hawaii for a while too, but eventually followed Brian's lead. And it was tough because, you know, when you're, when you're in the scene and it's happening, we were in most of the magazines and doing all sorts of modeling gigs. And it was, you're living large. You guys were, you guys were it, celebrities. It was, it's, and that, that was the hardest thing to s just snap out of it and put your head down and do something else. That was tough. Right. I remember the first day of medical school when I got there, you know, my brother left, my parents left, and I, I sort of just stood there for a minute by myself and I just said, I hope I feel better tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so they all flew out there with you? Yeah. And said, you uh -huh. know, took you out there? Oh, yeah. my gosh. That must have been such a moment. It was heavy. And, you know, because I knew I had four years ahead of me, and that's a major commitment. To be in St. Louis. They call St. Louis University UC St. Louis because half the class is Californians. Are you serious? So they, they really wanted to recruit me. So that they could tell Californians, hey, look, this surfer guy's here. You guys should come. Yeah, you're a perfect poster child of like, <laughs> just get over here. It's fine. You'll survive. So I, I won the Campbell Medical Scholarship. So it was really tough to say no. I got into USC, but it was going to cost me up to $30,000 a year, and I didn't have the money saved. Right. So I decided that it would be best for me just to suck it up and, and move to St. Louis and come back every three to six months when I could just surf then. Now that four years, you're a fit guy. You've always been a fit guy. I've never seen you out of shape. What were your worst habits going through med school in terms of <laughs> health and diet and fitness and whatever? And what were your better ones? I guess it was, it was trying to figure out what worked because you know, you're studying, you'd sit in class all day and then you had to study for about five hours after school. So I would set a timer at 7 p.m. and study till midnight. So that's five straight hours. So I usually have an hour in between class and getting home that I could just either work out for 45 minutes, go run, go do whatever. So I would do that every day, set my timer, and start working. But you mentioned that you did actually put on some weight. You were, you <laughs> oh, you do want to bring this up. Okay, yeah, yes. No. As an well, I think people will relate to the fact that somebody superhuman like you can – can get out of whack every once in a while. Right. So, I so think talk we, to me about that. We're all human and we all can get out of whack. 
So as an athlete, you just eat and eat, just keep that energy level up and you can eat anything really. But when I went to medical school, I was 20, how old was I? I was 23. So I was still eating cheeseburgers and everything just to fuel <laughs> up. And then I remember after med school or after class in med school, I would just have a liter of Pepsi, just regular Pepsi because I was so tired and I'd get the caffeine and the sugar. So I did that. I literally did that every day for a year and I just had my head down so much I had no idea. And then I had a girlfriend at the time that was out of the country. So I flew over to see her and she looked at me and she goes, what is that? (laughs) Pointing to your belly. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I didn't even notice. (laughs) Yeah. Cause you're just like head again, head down, head down and. You know, obviously I I shook it off that summer because I had the whole summer off. So I surfed for three months and that was the best summer in medical school is the first year because you have three months off and I didn't have to do anything, didn't have to work. So, oh, wow, that was great. So that helped. Yeah. You know, most surfers keep surfing to stay sane. And I had lost that. There wasn't really anything besides I would I started running and that that was decent. Um, You could play, you know, street hockey but I didn't have too many friends because in medical school, you're just studying all day. You're just buried. So I lived right on the park, um, right on the park. It's called Central. It's like Central Park in New York. Um, and I basically would run around the entire park and then go back and study. One of the biggest testaments to Brian's surfing talent, as well as his inner drive, was his surfing success after he graduated from medical school. After four years of being landlocked in St. Louis, Missouri, he came home to Southern California and started his residency at UCI. I came out and at UCI, they would give me two weeks off a year. So that two weeks I scheduled for the U.S. Open mm. so that I could actually compete because I was 27 and I would come back and I made the main event three years in a row as a resident doctor at UCI. Three years in a row? Three years in a row. Wow. And I had to start round one of the trials and I would I'd end up winning the trials and then... I'd usually lose first or second round the next. And it just, you but can't still. make it that many heats. I remember Shay Lopez <laughs> goes, Brian, if I made it seven heats, I'd be in the final. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the trials are brutal. It's They're like six brutal. or seven rounds. Yeah. Six or seven rounds to get to Wednesday. Yeah. That's amazing. And what about Kent? Was he doing the same thing? During that time, he actually got a part in um momentum actually in focus yeah it was focus we were both in momentum one and two we had just a couple little waves and then in focus he actually got a part focus i think was what the third one yeah that was the third that i was actually because there was seaside and seaside and beyond first oh yeah and then momentum one momentum two and then focus focus right that must have been a treat for you guys to be a part of that whole scene it was such a treat you know all those guys they haven't changed yeah (laughs) now but at some point you've gone from putting on the competitive jersey to working inside some of these surf events too yeah that's that's where i was headed so so basically um from the u.s open you know warren actually heard about me because i was he's a he's volunteer faculty for uci for the sports medicine so i actually rotated with him as a senior resident at uci and then PT was actually, he knew Warren, so he was telling Warren about me. And then Warren called me when I was a senior and said, hey, do you like sports? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, why don't you just come work with me? That's so awesome. Yeah, it was really great. He, he's an amazing human, isn't he? He is such an amazing human. And it was such a blessing to my career because, you know, he really taught me in orthopedics and sports, and it really changed the way I practice medicine. Now, can you... Just for the layman, put in perspective who Warren Kramer and his brother are and what they've done in terms of their field and how important they are. Yeah, they, you know, they're basically the the top doctors in orthopedics. And Sten Kramer does mostly neck and back and and interventional procedures. Mm. And, and Warren specializes in shoulders, knees, ankles, hips, and he's one of the best arthroscopists in the world. Both of them are surfers? Both of them are surfers. Okay. So I, I, I don't think I've met Sten. I play volleyball every once in a while with Warren okay. down at the beach in yeah. San Jose, and then he's always weaseling his way onto the Tavarua contest working that. <laughs> yeah. 
he gets first pick of which ones he wants. He to does. Work. He always gets first pick, and then he calls me if he can't go, and he goes, "Hey, Brad, you want to do this?" I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I will be there." That is so cool. Um, so, sports medicine is your sort of specialty. Yeah, that's my specialty. You know. Urgent care medicine is what I do mostly, and then I'm family medicine also by trade. So, you know, I kind of do all three. And how do you manage that? All three is... The- you know, w- when you work at an urgent care center, it just walks in the door. Does, yeah. <laughs> you don't have... It just, it's all there. <laughs> you just open it up, and there it is. Yeah. You're how old now? I'm 46. Getting up there, man. You look like you're 32. Oh, man, I you love look that. Great. I love yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> so... Because, I, I mean, honestly, it's you're such a busy guy. You're so successful. Are you balanced? Yeah. You know, it, it took a while because when you open this many locations, you know, if you don't work, it costs a lot of money because doctors are not cheap. Mm. And, um, and there's seven days a week when you're doing urgent care medicine. So, you know, I've been working pretty much every day for the last three years. Um, I can, now that daylight savings is here, I can surf, you know, after work on the weekends, especially, but oftentimes I'm in the office so early that I can't surf in the morning. So that, that's been tough. So I at least run or hit the gym before I go to work and I try and find some time on the weekends or on a half day to get out in the water. Ryan is clearly operating at a level and pace that's hard for many people to fathom. But what's even more impressive about it is that as he goes about his day, the smile never leaves his face. You can tell he's absolutely loved and adored by his patients and his staff. Naturally, he understands there's been trade-offs for all his hard work. And without a doubt, the toughest part was the process of becoming an individual, making that inevitable separation from his twin brother as they each found their own path. And, you know, when I, I left to medical school, it, it was kind of more my decision. I said, hey, I'm going to medical school. I'm out. Right. You know, and, and I, I still feel bad about it, kind of, because I, I, you know, I felt like I was injured. I made this decision and it, he eventually came back and made the same decision. But um, I'm not. Yeah. There was a tinge of guilt that you were giving yeah. up on your mutual dream. Yes. OK. I still feel a little guilty about it. Well, I don't. Yeah, that's ridiculous. But Thank I you. get it. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I get it. It's like, I mean, he made, but ultimately he made the same decision. And it really blows me away is that he went all the way through medical school, uh-huh. but then decided I'm going a different path. That's such a courageous move. It, it, it took a lot of guts. And yeah, you know, when he was at UCLA in Westwood, you know, he, he turned his apartment into a recording studio for music. Mm-hmm. And he had some sound engineers come in and just show him how to do it. And he just fell in love with music. And right when he was graduating from med school, a producer approached him and he made a, he did the intro song for one of his movies. Oh, wow. And I mean, he has his MD. Yes, he has his MD. Right. You know, you just have to go back and, and go to the hospital for three years and just get slaughtered if you want to practice. Right. So he's like, you know what? Forget it. He's such a smart guy. He's like, you know what? I'm going to get my MD so my brother can never say he's a doctor and I'm not. <laughs> That's what he did. <laughs> I imagine it wasn't some, it was obviously not some decision he made in a day. It was probably a conversation that you two had over months and months and months. Yeah. You know, what? I it was sort of looking at each other in the eyes and he saw how bloodshot my eyes are and how I didn't sleep for three days. <laughs> and he's like, you can do it. <laughs> And I don't think people realize it that when when someone puts their life in your hands, you know, you're responsible. And he's like, you know, Brian, I I'm not sure if 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 I I can do that. You know, it, it's just really makes me nervous. I would yeah. hate to do something and re- and if something happened to someone, I wouldn't be able to forgive myself. And I was like, oh my gosh, can't you know, whatever whatever makes you happy is is good for the family. And you know, now he he's found another path and he's super happy. Do you have that artistic side that he has? Do you guys both have that 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 knack? Believe it or not, I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we started playing with Jack Johnson. That's how we became such good friends. We used to play music in his garage in Hawaii. You know, Jack was on the drums. I'd be on the guitar. You know, none of us were singing at the time. Right. You guys were just making noise. Just making noise. So how much time were you guys spending in Hawaii? Because Jack lived in Hawaii. I don't understand how that all... Okay. You know, Jack was sponsored by Quicksilver also. Okay. So, you know, we were sitting on the beach one day in Newport, 
and Jack Johnson and Noah Johnson walked up, you know, and then they met, you know, Brian and Kent Doonan. So they were the John, we basically called them the Johnson brothers. Wow. The brothers Johnson. Right. Even <laughs> and, though they like, were no, brothers. we're not brothers. <laughs> no, I'm Noah and this is Jack. We're not related. That is so funny. Yeah. They were both together. And so that's really how we met. How often do you see each other? Yeah, we see each other probably every couple of months. Um, he lives in Ventura right now, and, and I live here in Newport. He's surfing a lot? He surfs every day. Oh, so he's happy camper. Uh, yeah, he's so happy. <laughs> <laughs> get some for me. Yeah. Do you guys get to travel together at all anymore? Do you do any trips together or anything like that? Yeah, right now. We haven't traveled recently, but our last trip, we went to Tavarua together. Nice. How many times have you been to a place like that with your brother? Um, I've only been once with him, okay. but I've been the doctor for the island seven times. And you stay there for how long? Two weeks at a time. You know, it's hard to miss work for two weeks because, you know, the rent is not cheap here in Fashion Island. Talk about athletes and your work with some of them because you must get a lot of joy out of that seeing people heal. Yeah. When someone comes in, it's a professional athlete comes in with an injury and... And, and the, just the stress level is so intense. And then once you fix them and they heal and they go back and win, it feels like you win. Mm, yeah. It's like the best feeling ever. And it seems like there's this whole sort of network now of doctors and stuff in the field who surf, who are really playing pretty vital roles. Um, are you guys all pretty tight? Like, is there a, a, a network of surfing doctors in your mind? That Yeah. That no, you... all of us talk on the phone all the time. And and who, who is that? Like, who is who's in that little club? There's a, a group of chiropractors, and there's a group of MDs, and all of us work hand-in-hand hand together. Um, we like it that all of us do different types of things. Myself, I'm, I'm sports medicine, but I'm also family medicine. Mm-hmm. Warren's orthopedics and surgery. Brother is a neck and back specialist. You know, Tim Brown's a chiropractor who does the whole thing, neck, back, everything. Right. So usually all of us, we worked hand in hand together at all the events that are local. Um, have you guys, when those big wave events are you guys involved in any of that? Not directly, but you know, one time this was probably ten years ago, when they just started towing into the monsters. Um, Billabong called Warren, and Warren couldn't go, so Warren's like, "Hey, Bry, do you want to go to Cortez Bank? Mm-hmm. They're gonna try and surf a hundred foot wave." <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, you were on that trip oh, with that's me. That's right. That was the sketchiest <laughs> and, thing ever. And, and a 70-foot cleanup wave came in that trip. And, and I think you caught about about 10 sets before that. You caught a wave, and you ended up doing cartwheels and oh, ended up on the inside. I was and I was throttled. so scared for you. Well, you and I, that was the funny thing. I was out there like you to spectate. Yep. And then you remember we had our own skis and we're uh-huh. zipping around and that place is so creepy. A hundred miles off the coast in the middle of the ocean. It is it, spooky. It was like, it wasn't a sunny, beautiful day out no, there. That it, day. it was wasn't. like cloudy and whatever. And we're watching it. I think it was Snips and Gurr and Greg Long and all the boys. And this was the height of towing. It was the height of towing. I mean, it was 30 foot backs that day. It was, it was big. And I remember just going, because uh, we were kind of sitting on the inside where they would kick out yep. and i remember going i'm gonna go sit out the back just to see what it's like when those guys are you know yep. where they're towing in uh-huh. which was a dumb it was a move. mistake my god <laughs> parsons and gerlach pull up and gerlach just throws me the rope and goes it's your turn Ugh. that was amazing you you made you made that wave a good three quarters of it well yeah it was so it was fine it was like beautiful easy entry and, and it just shows you how how dumb towing is in some ways, because if somebody like me who has no business taking off on a wave of Cortez bank <laughs> can go take off on a wave of Cortez bank. It's like, thank God it is not supposedly cool anymore to do towing. But, um, it was all good in the beginning, made it off the bottom, <laughs> off the top. And you then were it was doing like, great. Yeah. I was doing fine. And then I came off the top and like, yeah, there was like tr- a triple chop coming was up like, the wave. I saw it. Yeah. It was like a triple chop of, four foot humps coming up like a 30 foot wave oh no and so i'm like maybe i could layer this thing and try to just jump it you know uh-huh. and uh it's funny because you and grant ellis were the only witnesses yeah there's no photo evidence of this or anything <laughs> no so i still you're have like, it you're, in so, my mind so i'm gonna get this on podcast right now so like so people can just go okay oh, it's a true story <laughs> so you tell me if this is accurate okay 
But I tried to jump it and didn't clear the gap. And next thing I knew, I was underwater. It was, uh, yeah, it was a little more than that. You did a triple cartwheel. <laughs> you hit the chops. Like, I saw the chops and my, and you made it. I think you made it through the first two. You're like, yeah. boom, boom, boom. And then it turned into a, a triple cartwheel starfish. <laughs> and then I was like, oh no. He's the first one I'm going to have to save. I remember, I remember coming up, you know, just getting rolled and I come up and the first thing I see is Greg Long and he's probably a hundred yards away, but he spots me and he's pointing to Parsons where I am, you know, so Parsons could find me. Yeah. And there was a 50 foot wave, at least 50 foot coming right at me. I saw it break and I'm like, (laughs) oh no. And I just see your head popping up. I'm like. I hope Mike gets him. Uh, it was so cl- like he came zipping in. Biggest whitewater I've ever seen was just tickling my calves. It was tickling your calves. I actually thought he said this as a joke. He pulled up and he goes, "You have plenty of time." <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what he said. You got plenty of time, and you're like, "Give me that slide." <laughs> it was so funny because like he pulled me to the chair. He's like, "That was sick." You want another one? And I'm like, "No, no dude." <laughs> Okay, so good. You're my witness. Yep, I that was, was there. so awesome. I was there. That was that was actually an amazing day. So s- let's get back to you <laughs> and your advice to kids, because obviously you're somebody who took your parents' advice very seriously, and always having that backup plan. You know, there's so many kids today who are looking at pro surfing as a career. Yeah, it it is a great career. Go for being a pro surfer. Go for being a, any professional athlete. Go for your dreams. But it's always great to have something else. I don't want to call it a backup plan anymore. I want to call it a life plan. And just getting an education always gives you that second path. And there's a certain networking effect that you have when you're joining these organizations, whether it be surfing or anything else. You grew up, you went through the ringer with an amazing generation of guys. We did. And it's, I imagine that they're like a family to you. They're, we're all like brothers. So, and, and just seeing each other now is just like a, a big high school reunion. That's pretty cool, man. It's great. I look at why you're so successful, both you and your brother, and you guys are people people. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you, know I mean? you know what, that's, that's right. I just have so much fun meeting new people every day, and most people don't realize I'm even a surfer half the time. Yeah. You're not virtue signaling your your surf status. I am wearing all Hurley, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, Brian, I know you got to go. You got patience to go visit. Yeah. It's been really fun catching up, and I hope we get to do this again with Kent maybe next time. I would love that. Yeah. Congratulations on all your success, first of all, and thank you for what you do, because I think it's just incredibly awesome. Thank you. And uh, yeah, man, we'll be in touch. All right, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. What an amazing human. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I swear, every time I run into Brian and Kent, it just sort of restores my faith in humanity. They are such good humans, total givers, and just jolts of energy every time without fail. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, I hope you will go and give it a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. Um, And if you want to contact me and give me some well-deserved abuse or feedback, best bet is just to DM me at my Instagram channel, which is People Who Surf Show. Really appreciate it. There's a lot of good stuff coming there. And of course, you could also go to the website, which is peoplewhosurf.com, and check out some blogs and extra info on each episode there. Okay, looking forward to catching up with Kent in a future episode as soon as I can get my way up to Ventura. But in the meantime, we're going to go out with Kent's song called Beautiful. So hope you enjoy it, and we will see you again soon. Episodes are coming hot and heavy here. Sorry for the delay on this one. Went over the bars on my mountain bike, and that set me back a bit. But we are back in action, hot and heavy, coming at you. Okay, here's Kent. You've got to do what you love 
Yeah. 